This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our books and comics show here on trek fm i'm your host matthew rushing and with me as he is always is dan gunther dan uh i see that you have it looks like is that is that quirk behind you what is going (laughs) on are you visiting deep space nine and you didn't tell me I am indeed visiting Deep Space Nine. It's uh, it's really become my home away from home. Uh, I'm back here, and, and Quark's here, believe it or not, still, after all these years, even on this new Deep Space Nine, Quark's still hanging around. You know, I always think of that that Indiana Jones saying, you know, I'm like a bad penny, I always turn up. I feel like Quark's like that on Deep Space Nine. Definitely, absolutely. And you know what? I even actually saw Odo sparring with him a few hours ago. It's it's like I'm back in time. Well, it's great. You know, I, I really do enjoy the new station. Uh, it is a nice place to visit. That, that huge rec room with, uh, you know, all the bike trails and the skydiving and the mountain climbing and everything. Oh my gosh, I, I spend hours in that place. <laughs> Skydiving on Deep Space Nine, who'd have thought? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, of course, we are going to be talking in our feature to Una McCormick about her new book, The Missing. I, I guess you might have been able to tell that as we're enjoying the new Deep Space Nine here and Dan's apparently visiting without telling me again. Um, but uh, we don't have a lot of news uh, this week, but we did have a great article there on Comic Book Resources where um, Mike Johnson, who runs the uh, IDW Star Trek line, the ongoing line, was talking about the where they're going to be going with this, uh, what they call kind of this second five-year mission because they got interrupted with uh, Into Darkness and all the things that happened after that. And they're finally there. You know, we're finally on this five-year mission. And it was a really interesting article, I thought, Dan. Yeah, definitely. Some really interesting tidbits in there. Uh, some great questions were asked about where the where they see the series going, and especially in the next couple of issues, uh, telling the story of Behemoth, uh, which looks to be kind of a Moby Dick type of adaptation in the Star Trek world. Are they going to be running into whales in space, you think? (laughs) Something like that. It looks pretty interesting. (laughs) I'm just imagining Scotty being able to say, There'll be whales here, Captain! (laughs) Oh, I should have seen that one coming. Yeah, yeah, you should have. Um, (laughs) (laughs) 
What I did love about the article too, Dan, I thought was really cool is, you know, they have talked about the fact they worked closely with uh, Robert Orsi about the scripts and then, of course, the upcoming stories. And he's signed off now on all the stories that are going to be coming up, but that they're also hoping to really plant the seeds for Star Trek Three. And kind of do a third countdown prequel as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some definitely some very exciting news about that. I, I love when they can tie in these various media together and kind of create a cohesive whole. Uh, last episode, we kind of talked a bit about that, about how the wider Star Trek universe could definitely use kind of this cohesion. I'm also really loving some of the little uh, hints about bringing in other things that were from the original series, like uh, Chekhov's ex-girlfriend Irina will be making an appearance. And just little things like that really show that these writers care about Star Trek and know their stuff. So maybe there's something that Chekhov can't do. You know, uh, he's always saying, <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. But maybe this time, not so I can't much. do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, I, Captain, I can't work with her. Uh, she is just <laughs> terrible. Uh, I do not like working with her. Uh, that's my terrible Russian accent. So enjoy that, people. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think what's great is they, they asked, too, what maybe classic episode they might rework or, or, or just take some bits and pieces. And one of them they're going to be doing is the Tholian Web, which I thought was exciting. Uh, first time to see the Tholians here in this uh, new series. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my favorite episodes from the classic series. Uh, I love the Tholians and... I love how mysterious they were in that episode, and I'm pretty excited to see the ongoing series take on the Tholians. Yeah, that's really exciting. And then I like that they have uh, guest artist Kat Skaggs uh, on Bohemoth. I think the artwork here is looking fantastic, and I'm really excited to see where this is going to go and and really be continuing the story. You know, I think as we talked about, the Q Gambit was just a fantastic start to the five-year mission, even though it involved the Q, and that seemed like something, oh no, they're going to do Q, but it worked fantastically, and so I'm excited to see where they go next, because they said that they do want to maybe bring back some other villains from Star Trek, maybe in the future, not necessarily now, but they have some ideas that might rile some fans up as well. Sounds like you might be getting close to saying the dreaded B word. Uh, Bob? What about Bob? <laughs> yeah, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> or Borg, yes. Yes, that's yeah. what we're talking about. They they have talked about the idea of bringing the Borg to this series. Uh, and I don't know, what do, you, what do you think, Dan? Is that something that you would like to see the, uh, you know, the original series crew in the JJ-verse face? Well, Matthew, it is an entirely new timeline, and they can kind of go anywhere they want with it. So, I mean, that certainly gives them the in to be able to do it. Is it a good idea? Well, I remember when they announced that the Borg were going to show up on Enterprise, and I was very trepidatious about that, and I had opinions about when and how the Borg should show up. But Regeneration was an excellent episode, and I really love it. Um, So if it's done right... This could be really good. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it, it's it is a new era for them to play in uh, because everything is different. So I really have no problems with them bringing in the Borg. I, I think what you just need to do is you need to make it good, uh, and you need to make it feel 
organic to that story. And so as long as you do that, I think it's going to be fantastic uh, because you do have all these things to play with again, but in a different way. And I, I like that. So perfectly fine with the Borg coming on. Just make it good. Definitely. You don't want to just make it a gimmick. And they they succeeded with Q with not making it just a gimmick appearance. So um, yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic. Well, and one of the best uses of Q that I've seen in the literature for for a long time, um, I, you know, I think of Q and A being a, a fantastic use of him in the book series. We haven't seen him in a while, uh, you know. Even though I think the Voyager series used him with um, the Eternal Tide, so that's probably the last time I feel like we've seen Q. And then, of course, he showed up now in the JJ verse, and I. I really like the way that they used him, so I have mm. no problems. Uh, they they continue to make things good on this series for the most part, and I continue to enjoy reading it, and that's really what matters. Definitely, yeah, that's what, really what it comes down to. Are fans going to enjoy it? Are they going to read it? And at the end of the day, is it a worthwhile addition to the Star Trek universe? And so far, I think it has been. Agreed. Well, before we jump into our feature with Una McCormick, where we're going to talk about The Missing. We just wanted to remind everybody about Audible being the premier source for audiobooks. And, you know, they've got 150,000 titles to choose from, with more coming each week. Uh, You've got classics, you've got current bestsellers, and then, of course, you've got some of the most famous Star Trek books as well. Seriously, Audible has something for everyone. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So just go over to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting literary treks and the network. Dan, I am so excited about today. Um, I have... So much enjoyed Una McCormick's books. Uh, you know, uh, the last time that, that we got a chance to talk to her, it was The Crimson Shadow. And I think universally in, in Star Trek books, it was it was beloved. And now The Missing has dropped and we have the follow up to the series The Fall and kind of the ramifications of a lot of those things that happened on Deep Space Nine. And so I'm very excited to welcome back to Literary Treks, Una McCormick. How are you doing today, Una? I'm great. Thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me back, Matthew. It's really good to be here. I'm super excited, uh, mainly because, you know, The Fall was uh, quite an epic series in in mm. Star Trek, and a lot of things happened. A lot of things had been built up to for years and years, and it finally came to a head. And so in light of the events of The Fall... And you knew you were going to have a follow-up. You were going to be the first book really kind of following that up. Where did the ideas for this book come from and, and kind of morph into this story uh, with with Deep Space Nine? Well, when I uh, uh, after I finished The Crimson Shadow or uh, whilst I was partway through it near the end of it, uh, Margaret Clark, the editor, came to me and editor of the Trek books came to me and said, you know, we've had a lot of books in recent years that have had a real military focus or a focus on the politics. And the way that I'm conceptualizing the books for uh, the next year is a year of exploration. And I thought, fantastic. That's that's really, really great. That's getting back to something that really was at the heart of Star Trek. And I think that these big series like The Fall 
these big sort of uh, political and military series like Destiny as well are fantastic and they're, they're brilliant. They push the boundaries of the show. Um, and I, But I think that we had perhaps gone as far as we could with those. We'd had dramatic events and uh, had gone down lots of uh, uh, alleys and byways exploring those kinds of things. And that it was time now perhaps to pull back to that other aspect of Trek, which was its exploration. So that was really what I had. That was sort of, I think whenever you write a book, you've got a kind of tagline at the, uh, the you know, it, what, what's the thing they'd say if they were the guy, you know, doing the movie trailer? So at the back of my mind, I kind of had a year of exploration over the top. And that was the, the touchstone that I came back to uh, while I was writing the book. So the focus is on exploration and that desire to um, uh, make contact, meet new aliens, meet new people, meet go to new worlds, I guess. Um, so that was what I had in mind while I was writing the book. Well, in addition to the kind of return to exploration, uh, one thing that I really noticed and one thing that I've always loved about Deep Space Nine is the kind of day-in-the-life feel of the yes. series. And I really felt like your book kind of came back to that a bit after we kind of haven't gotten that in a while. So what was it like writing a story that kind of took on that more Deep Space Nine feel? Oh, I, I mean, I've always loved doing that about, about Deep Space Nine. I, I enjoyed doing that in Holloman. It's part of uh, what I loved watching um, on the show. Uh, things like, I'd, which other Star Trek would you get? I don't know. Uh, there's a whole the whole sequence at the start of one episode where um, Garrick, Lita, Rom and Zial are all trying to pick out a wedding dress. Which other show would you get that on? It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that people do all the time. Only this is people in latex on a spaceship and a <laughs> space station. I just think that's absolutely great. Oh, let's, let's just stand here and pick a wedding dress. Um, and that was good fun. I think partly as well, it was my chance to explore the new station that I was getting familiar with a station that um, somebody else had designed and, and other people had just kind of worked up together. And it was my own exploration to that, of that to some degree. So my um, character, Corazame, is, is new to the station, looking around and exploring it. Uh, and that was my exploration too. I, I was very, very taken with the idea that you could uh, bike around the station. So I, I, I must come back to that. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I, I think that's oh, brilliant, biking around a space station. I just think that's fantastic. So it was my exploration of that space uh, as well. Me getting used to these new um, these new spaces, I think. I, I, I was very familiar with the old Deep Space Nine and uh, you had, had, had obviously watched the show again and again and uh, spent a lot of time there in my imagination. But to uh, have this new space, I think, was a, uh, a task for a writer. It's, it's something you've got to uh, learn as well as the readers. Do they give you uh, any drawings or, or any idea of kind of how the space is laid out on the new Deep Space Nine? Yeah, I've got I've got some lovely technical drawings. Um, not as uh, as detailed as the DS9 technical manual, which uh, was my bible for when I was writing things like Hollow Men. Um, but uh, some beautiful technical drawings that kind of gave me a. Um, I think when you're writing a, a, a space like that, you want a, a you want a sort of sense of the the color palette of um, how the air smells. Uh, how roomy uh, individual spaces are, and and the drawings sort of pit, but did some of that for me. I don't have a very visual imagination. I've, I've got much more an auditory imagination, which is why I like writing dialogue. Um, so pictures like that are absolutely crucial for me. It really gives my imagination uh, something to work with. I'm very bad at kind of description and imagining space. So having those pictures was a real gift, and they're. They're lovely. They're very, very nice. Yeah. I feel like we need one of those Deep Space Nine books to 
include a layout of the new station for the the fans so we can kind of have an idea of those spaces too because there's a few things that Doug Drexler has on his blog of, mm. of kind of showing you the immense size because this Deep Space Nine almost feels like the JJ like version of Deep Space Nine because it's so massive compared to the uh, old station and yeah. and how much you know I mean you have the the big rec center area that that it has an entire like almost mountain in it you know so yeah it's it's a it's a big space and that's what I love about this station is it just feels like what we think of as as a as a brilliant beautiful uh space station in space you know uh something it's almost like um you know the old station it it was so home to us because we'd been there for so long and yet when we think about it it's really a drab dank dark it's a dump yeah Yeah, it's a it's a former sort of mining station that was uh populated by slaves (laughs) so it's absolutely horrible you've got this sort of uh you know, people with with greasy clothes pulling loads of heavy weights along and things. So yeah, whereas this is a purpose built Federation station, uh, so it should be it should be shiny, it should be bright. There should be lots of greenery. It should feel like you've checked into a really nice hotel, um, as opposed to you know you've you've checked into a, a, a dodgy pension or something somewhere. So completely different. And to uh, as a Right, so you're kind of going, oh, I must remember, you fall into the old habits, you kind of go, oh, I must remember that it's, it's not the promenade, or I must remember that it's not, you know, it's got to be bright now, the, the ceilings have got to be high, but uh, whatever happens, Quark will always be there trying to make a fast buck, so that's kind of like the, the beating heart of Deep Space Nine is still there, Quark is, is still there, he'd be like the, um, the last person off when they turned off the lights, I imagine, what will be last to depart <laughs> i do love that that he is in deep space nine still and and that you know even even where he's positioned on deep space nine it almost does feel like he really is the heart of of the station and and it makes it i don't know it's 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 such a beautiful uh, thing to think of because he's such a character that so many people kind of still have wishy-washy feelings with and and yet <laughs> Him still being there and, and um, being at the center makes this new Deep Space Nine still feel like the old one, even though it's different. Exactly that. Exactly that. That, you know, Cardassians come and go. The Federation comes and goes. The Dominion comes and goes. But there is Quark still dreaming, still thinking he's going to make a fortune and still just serving drinks and uh, you know, keeping his eye on what's going, this little bit of the, I think I say this in the book, this little tributary or eddy in the Great River is, uh, which is where Quark is. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be Deep Space Nine without Quark. Whereas I think uh, other characters can come and go. Cisco can come and go, or even Kira, uh, even Odo, they can all come and go. But Quark has, has got to be there, does I think, yeah. Well, one thing your book did was, for the first time really make me want to explore and visit this new deep space nine. So that was, that was really great. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad about that. It's a uh, good, I'm really pleased about that. Michael. I was, I was enthusiastic about being there. So I, I hope some of that conveyed. Yeah. Brilliant. So one thing I wanted to ask was um, the character of Dr. Pulaski, um, kind of what made you choose Dr. Pulaski for that story? She's kind of a character that engenders a lot of strong feelings and some mixed feelings among many fans. And so why did you choose her? And what was your experience in writing her character, especially when writing both her and Dr. Crusher kind of playing off one another? Well, I always, uh, right from when I watched, uh, sorry, right from when I watched uh, uh, Next Generation, when it was the, uh, 
must have been the late 80s, early 90s, by the time it got to Britain. I just thought Pulaski was a, a hoot. I thought she was an absolute riot. And then when I kind of got online, and uh, which I did in what the mid-90s, I discovered that people didn't like her. And I thought, oh, well, all right. So I didn't know that. that they, they thought she was kind of a cut price um, McCoy or something like that. And I just thought she was brilliant. I mean, I uh, I grew up in a in a family with lots lots of kind of bad tempered old ladies. So I think maybe I was just <laughs> primed to like people like that. And I, I think I'm turning into quite a bad tempered old lady. So um, I'm quite primed to like characters like that. I liked the way she always had an eyebrow arch. She was always uh, there was always a kind of wise crack or some sort of sharp observation. And um, uh, that that was what I liked about it. So so it was a surprise to me that people didn't like that. And I thought, um, do you know, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna. I, th- I think a friend dared me. He's a great Pulaski fan. And he said, I'd love a book with Pulaski, uh, and I would I would love a story in which Pulaski fights crime. So, so I went, okay, all right, I'll I'll rise to that challenge. I, I I'll go back. I, I'll I enjoy writing Pulaski as well. And I think that the um, other thing is that we often see this comparison between one doctor and the other. Oh, I didn't like Pulaski, it was much better when Crusher returned. Uh, and I think this is something that we often see with um, female characters, that they're often set in competition with each other. Uh, and I wanted to go, well, you know, if these two women, what what do they actually think of each other? They're, uh, they're both doctors, they both have high levels of professional expertise, they're very, very well respected. Um, would Crusher find Pulaski annoying? Would Pulaski find Crusher uh, too bland? Uh, and in fact, they turn out that, uh, you know, it, they, they rub against each other at first. Um, but in fact, they find out they've got, there's a lot to respect in each other and they respect each other professionally. And then I think, I hope during the course of that book, they kind of come to a sort of personal accommodation as well, that Crusher finds that she likes um, Pulaski's frankness and Pulaski admires Crusher's integrity and meticulousness. So I tried to find things that each of the women could admire in each other because I like stories in which women are friends. So that was sort of what drove that um, that dynamic. I wanted I wanted a strengthening of friendship and appreciation to be the, the narrative trajectory for these women. So that that's why I wrote it. I'd written Crusher before, so I kind of had an excuse to come back to her. Um, but Pulaski was a was a dare from a friend. <laughs> Well, I really loved um, that you actually kind of confront that head on and almost break the fourth wall um, talking about how people compare and contrast us. And I love that line where Pulaski says, but I was always more than just the chief medical officer of the enterprise. Yeah. I, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, good. Oh, I'm glad you liked that. I, I thought I had to acknowledge some of these debates because I, I knew that the minutes that people saw Pulaski uh, as a as a central character, that that they would be thinking, oh no, not that <laughs> B woman, you know, oh I can't stand her. So I thought I've got to, I've just got to acknowledge that, bring it front and center, because I'm sure that's in the fictional world, people are going, oh, you know, Catherine Pulaski, she's a pain in the neck, can't get her to shut up, she's so abrasive. Um, so yes, yeah, so it was fun to bring that in and sort of um, uh, anticipate what people might say. Yeah. Well, it was so nice to have though your follow up with. Um... Dr. Crusher, because, you know, she plays a big part in Brinkmanship, and mm. that book had a, a very large focus on Crusher, who, who's honestly a character I think we talked about when we talked about Brinkmanship that mm. hasn't had a lot to do in Star Trek in general. Um, even the books, she she seems to have a very 
we don't have a lot to do for our uh, a character like her. And and whereas in your books, you know, with brinkmanship and and this here, she's the main character along with Roe, and then you have Pulaski. And what I thought was so great about this entire book is that it's a it's a Star Trek book that revolves around the women of Star Trek, but so organically mm-hmm. that it doesn't feel like a gimmick or, oh hey we're just I'm gonna write the all woman book to Star Trek. Um, <laughs> that's what I loved about this is we got to celebrate the women of Star Trek for all that they really are for the series, their brains, what they bring to um, the 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 shows, the, the what they could have been used for on the shows and sometimes weren't, um, you know, and, and this really utilized every single female character uh, in a way that you could respect. Even somebody like Pulaski, where I felt like this woman fits perfectly in this Deep Space Nine world because people are more mm-hmm. snarky and all that there, mm-hmm. whereas she didn't fit so much on the Enterprise because that, that type of character didn't fit with the rest of the characters. Uh, yeah. And the writing style. So, putting all that, you just you worked some serious magic because now I'm a huge Pulaski uh, fan. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that. That was entirely the plan was for people to read this book and at the other end of it go, you know, I could I could read another book about Pulaski. <laughs> she, I mean, obviously a very entertaining. I sometimes wonder if I dialed the notch up a bit, so whether she's a, she was a bit too snarky or a bit too abrasive, but I was having a lot of fun. I was writing this book when my, uh, I've got a brand new daughter. I was writing this book very early in the morning. So I was sitting down to write about five o'clock every morning. Um, I was feeling pretty snarky, I tell you. So uh, a lot of that was coming through Pulaski. I'm really pleased about what you say, that it doesn't feel gimmicky, that it, it's all women, that it feels organic. So I think this is so often the problem that female characters or um, uh, uh, women actors have, is that the uh, you, you know, you've got the, the big one, the strong one, the brave one, the leader, the female one, and that being female becomes the gimmick. Um, and that what I wanted from this book was for uh, the women to be people, that you would go, there's the snarky one, there's the uh, intimidated one, there's the professional one, there's the captain, and that these would be, you would almost secondarily go, oh, yeah, they happen to be women. Uh, so ideally you don't notice, you just notice that these are people doing their job or um, working through particular problems or difficulties in their lives so i'm very pleased that it, it didn't feel like a gimmick that's that's very good well and and the best part about it too is that it feels so organic as well being set on deep space nine because deep mm. space nine was known for its strong women characters that didn't fall necessarily into just a a cookie cutter mold i mean you had somebody like kira who uh, at the beginning kind of came off uh, in some ways a little tropey, but by the end, you know, she's one of the most dynamic characters Star Trek's ever seen. Uh, and then... Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. Know, so, And then um, I think Esri is the... Uh, I think we discussed this in the past. I think Esri is the really good, the really interesting female character there. That's um, it, It's easy to write strong women, but if you write someone who's a little bit nervous, a little bit shy, a little bit uncertain of herself and make that feel like a real person that she's not having to fulfill uh certain expectations of what a female character must be but it's just a person uh i, I think esri works extremely well as a as a character particularly after after Jadzia. one of the things that i love about what you did with pulaski is that you had her in a lot of ways fulfill that role that she done 
TNG where she was basically McCoy giving advice to people in the way that he does. You know, he'd do it over uh, mm-hmm. some sort of bourbon or, you know, a Georgia mint and julep. Uh, Pulaski was pretty mm-hmm. much doing the same thing. But the advice that she gives to Crusher, I thought, about marriage was some of the best marriage advice I've ever heard. Um, and the, the fact that she just says, look, marriage takes time. It's a time investment. And if you want it to last, you have to invest the same amount of time in it as you do all the other things in your life. You know, you can't let it go by the wayside or else it's going to become something that you just leave by the wayside. And I thought that was a really cool thing to see that talked about. Cause you know, in Star Trek, marriage is, is in some ways kind of idealized and this really brought it to the, these are still people who have to deal with the everyday realities of what it's like to be married under these stressful situations. And they have the same kind of problems that we do too. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm. I'm glad that rang true. I think. Um, yes, we don't. We. I, I guess we see. Uh, we. We see Wolf and Dax very briefly, don't we? We see Miles and Keiko, but I. I. I, I find that a very um, frustrating portrayal of marriage. Really, it's quite. A, yeah, it's pretty hackneyed. You know, Keiko's nagging. Miles is put upon. Uh, so it's not always uh, very interestingly portrayed. And I'm struggling to think of other examples now. Um, but. Um, yeah, Pulaski seems to be a, a, a veteran, and, and seem uh, what I liked about her as I, I wrote more more about her was that she wasn't uh, self deluded. She she knew why um, things hadn't worked in her life, and said, "Well, you know, I, I didn't put the hours in. I, you know, I'm not surprised he got fed up. <laughs> you know, I was uh, I was I was absent. I was uh, I was interested in." curing this disease or exploring uh, this avenue of research. So, uh, so fair dues. Uh, and I, I enjoyed that honesty from her, I think. And it was, um, I, I think she goes through the book disarming people uh, with, her, with her frankness. And, uh, and that I liked, I think. Uh, too much frankness I would probably get a bit, uh, a bit sick of after a while, but uh, I enjoyed it for the duration of the book. <laughs> well, one thing that I've always loved about your writing uh, was – your depiction of Cardassian society and how you evolved that culture. And um, I feel like between this novel and Brinkmanship, uh, the Zen Kathy are definitely getting the same treatment and especially through the character of Corazame. And I was kind of wondering, like, was there kind of a basis for the, uh, the molding of their society and maybe specifically the character of Corazame? I got very interested. A, a lot of the, uh, I mean, all the groundwork for this is done by David R. George, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, what he had written. I got very, very interested in what he'd written. I think the thing that I found most fascinating was the idea that they, um, the way they used space, uh, the way they used space in their rooms, that um, uh, um, there was something claustrophobic about it, the way that every available space was sort of, you know, we'd, we'd use sort of, uh, we'd have a means of being able to use the space on the walls or the space of the ceilings. Uh, and this seemed to me a, a very interesting route to a uh, very interesting aspect of the society to explore this sort of um, uh, desire for proximity, a desire to um, uh, make hierarchy very materially clear. And that's why I, I think that's why I got very interested in them. Also the complexity of their names and uh, what this must mean for a, a society. If you're spending that much attention on uh, the intricacy of, of title and, uh, and, and getting that correct, 
Um, I mean, there's there's a bit of that in Britain where, you know, oh, what do you call the bishop? You call them your grace and what, how are you meant to address the queen and this sort of thing? It's all nonsense, of course. But if a society did take that seriously and was able to enforce it in some way, how would that work? Um, what sort of mindset would you have to be in to uh, feel that you had to give that kind of deference and what kind of enforcement systems would there need to be in place so that people just wouldn't go, oh, you know, the flipping queen, she's a waste of space to so get rid of her, this sort of thing. So that's why I became interested in the um, the intricacies of that hierarchy. Cardassia enforces its hierarchy by threat, by brutality. Um, you know, it, it, the Obsidian Order is there to take away your children or torture you. Um but I didn't get that with St. Kathy's society. I felt that it was internalized, um, the, the oppression in the society, that people willingly submitted. And that process of persuading people to willingly submit to certain kinds of hierarchy, uh, I find extremely interesting. So that was my fascination, I think, with St. Kathy's society. And then what was interesting to me with Corazane uh, was somebody who wasn't a freedom fighter or had diagnosed the ills of her society, but had suddenly found herself plucked out. And how she would come to terms with that, I mean, the, the way I set up her situation is that she she can't return. They, would, they wouldn't trust her or they would think that she was a spy or they would think she had been contaminated in some way. There was a kind of um, social taboo as well. So to take someone who has been made forcibly free and what that experience must be like, um, and how she would, uh, whether she would feel that freedom was a, a new kind of bondage or a kind of exile. I, she was just a, a ideally place for me to explore these issues. Um, I got very fond of Corazem. I, I, I really like her. I'm really glad. I, I, I knew when I finished Brinkmanship, I thought I've got to get this character back into a book as soon as possible. Uh, and then when the missing came up and I knew it wasn't a Cardassian book, I thought, yeah, she's she's got to be in this book somehow. So I kind of engineered an opportunity to to put her in by putting a Zenkethi on um on Pulaski's ship. So yeah, that that's that's what I wanted to do with Corazane and what I wanted to explore with with that society. Well, I've read a number of books about like North Korean escapees and and uh, her story really reminded me of that. I, I just, a lot of the same feelings and dealing with um, things that are so alien and so outside what, what she's grown up knowing. I thought that story was incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really interesting that people pick up on on that, actually, because I've, I've read a lot of similar accounts as well um, of, of people who've come away from North Korea and um, just the, the, the shock of being in, in South Korea, the... Uh, uh, sense of dislocation, the um, alienation uh, that that's it, it's that the kind of worship that they're meant to participate in in the uh, in you know the the sort of obeisance to the great leader. Um, it, the the big difference I think is that um, uh, Zenkethi society is uh, rich and very beautiful, whereas I think North Korea must be a pretty bleak existence. Um, I, I imagine there's great uh, natural beauty, but great poverty as well. And I didn't imagine the Zenkethi as uh, poor, um, uh, but I did imagine them as certainly kind of uh, culturally enslaved in some way. But yeah, I, I certainly those those I've read the same kinds of memoirs, 
and uh, I, I'm, I'm certain that they fed in. Um, so I think that's quite perceptive. Yeah. What's funny to me is, is I was thinking of, of the, I didn't have any idea if you had thought about this, but the, the Zen Kethi society reminded me almost of ancient Egypt, where you had a, a strict caste society, you had the worship of, of um, the pharaohs, uh, and, and everybody kind of worked in their area and you didn't cross over and, and all those things. That's and, and then if you had taken that person and, and kind of brought them to, uh, you know, a, a different society where people were, were more free at that time period mm-hmm. or even had brought them forward in history, you know, it, it almost felt like what it was like for Corazane to come out of that and and she, you know, because the other Zen Kathy that you have in the story, you know, they talk about, you know, how they, the, they do everything for their leader, you know, as if mm-hmm. almost like the founders and and the um, the Jem'Hadar and the Vorta, you know, they've all been engineered to worship and adore the founders and do their bidding. In some ways, the Zen Kathy almost seem very similar uh, to that, and yet they mm-hmm. they have a little bit better of a life in some ways you know like you said they 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 seem to enjoy their life a little bit more um and so it's a really interesting thing that was intentional i think because i think that you can't um i I, i'm not sure how well having said that you know some societies last a very long time uh with a rule of um uh sort of threats and um oppression i mean north korea has lasted longer than i think many of us would have would have believed possible um i i imagine that most ordinary egyptians uh probably had a had a pretty you know they they probably just got up every day went oh you know the the crops are growing okay you know it's not desert time yet it's a, i think on a day-to-day basis even in um ancient rome which must be the the sort of prime example of a of a slave society your average slave in living in rome probably he got by, you know, he made a little money on the side. He would get be able to go off and have a, you know, few glasses of wine with his other slave friends. There's, these societies are quite flexible. If we want these sort of systems of oppression to endure, they the societies tend to be quite flexible about um, having ways of letting off steam and letting little valves that let out uh, steam from people so that there isn't a revolution. Um, and that was sort of what I imagined uh, Zenkethi society being like. Corazame actually has quite a pleasant life. She has a, uh, she loves her friends. She loves the music that she sings. She's in beautiful surroundings. She has quite a boring job. Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> you know, she's quite timid, so she likes observing people. She loves, so she can find time to be by herself. She has quite a quiet and pleasant existence. She's quite loyal, um, quite loving, so it's easy for her to love the object of her devotion, the the autarch. So it, it's it's horrible for her to be wrenched away from that and horrible then to realise that um, not all that she loved was worthy of that love. So uh, that, that was the sort of story I wanted to tell and make it as nuanced as possible. Uh, I'm really glad people have, have responded to it. Well, the, the thing I love about the Zen Kathy as well is that, you know, they're this foe for the the federation and the, and some mm. of the people around them at, at the same time you know they have this angelic look to them so everybody's drawn to them you know when they see them especially if if they ever see them kind of in all their you know magisterial glory mm. you know they're they immediately want to 
to to be near them and so it's such an interesting thing to see you know this this dichotomy of this is somebody who's our enemy but at the same time i'm i'm drawn to them because of who they are and what they look like and what they can do and how beautiful they are and all that kind of stuff it it's a really interesting thing to watch the characters kind of react to just how the zenkethi look and and you know you really just can't judge people by their their cover yeah, they're compelling in some way. I, I think I read a review that uh, that said, "Oh, come on, these are elves," and I thought, <laughs> "Oh yeah, I'm busted, yes. busted." Yeah, but uh, space elves. So um, yes, there's there's something compelling about them, and I think that's uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to explore, um, both from um, outside the society and the people within it. Yeah. Well, and that's something that I really picked up in this book is this whole idea of of judging people by their cover or our preconceived notions or uh, presuppositions about their race. Uh, and Picard, you know, writes about that a little bit in his opening um, logs that you have him there. And, and some of the people even kind of hint at, at that idea. But you really do a great job, I think, in this book of showing that we can only judge people by the true experience of getting to know them. And, and, and that's one of the reasons that um, we go exploring is because that's how we get to know people by shared experience. And I really liked that idea of, of saying this is how the Federation has helped uh, become this, what people probably look like on the outside, this homogenized thing because mm. they've spent 200 years traveling together on their starships yeah. and getting to know each other's societies. And that's the way the Federation has come together, not through force or anything like that, but they've come together because their shared experiences now bind them together. Even though they're still different, they're, they're also, they have a shared value system now and all these things because they've grown together through their their experience of exploring I, I thought that was a really beautiful deal that's really i if if that theme was was present it was it it was latent uh, I, I i don't think i consciously um worked that in but i think you're right that it's it's absolutely a sort of um product of of what it means to explore and to explore with an open mind so i'm i'm delighted that that that, that comes through as a theme because i uh, it, it, it's something I agree with, um, and though I wasn't consciously writing it, I'm, I'm thrilled it comes through. I'm really, I really like that reading. Thank you. Well, that's I think the greatness of of um, of your your writing in these Star Trek books is that even though you're not consciously writing these themes, they're pouring out of you, you know, and we're able to kind of pick them up, and and that's what makes for a good book is that when when a theme an author didn't even intend kind of pops out. At, at, a, at a reader and then surprises the author that's awesome you know that means you're really I, doing I your think job it's fantastic well it's it's the exploration experience again isn't it you, sort of, <laughs> you as the author think of something you put it down and somebody goes whoa that makes me think of that and you go yes yes you're right i hadn't thought of that so the, <laughs> the book becomes that kind of encounter again in itself it's exactly what reading is about isn't it it enlarges the enlarges both reader and and writer and i think that's a that's a terrific thing uh, we're very lucky to be able to sort of, um, talk, you know, uh, books used to just go out there and you'd never know if they got read or uh, ed- anyone had responded to them. So uh, and now we've got the internet and podcasts and I can speak to readers and they can go, I thought of this. And I, I can go, I think that's very clever. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> we're, we're in a very lucky time, I think. 
Well, one theme that I notice kind of comes across a lot in your work is um, kind of atonement and redemption. Um, and one character that I was actually really surprised to be able to connect with was a character who was, again, both in Brinkmanship and and this novel, The Missing, which was uh, Peter Alden. And uh, his whole character arc in this novel was kind of like a surprise gem for me reading this. I absolutely loved um, where his character went and the conclusions that he kind of came to. Um, and I was wondering if, the, if there was any kind of uh, inspiration for stories of redemption such as his. Um, well, I was brought up a Catholic, so um, uh, lots of... Uh, 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 kind of brought up with a sense that I... vague sense that I needed to atone for something. So I wasn't quite sure what. Um, so I suspect that's where it where it comes from. Um, Alton had an interesting an interesting genesis. I was uh, at one point I wrote a great deal of uh, fan fiction based on um, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, and I particularly wrote a character called um, Faramir, who, for those of you who've read the read the books rather than seen the films, is sort of um, he's he's like the ideal man in a way. He's sort of Tolkien's repository of the of everything that he thinks is a is a virtue there's a there's courage there's humility there's moderation uh and um in a way i i thought what would i wanted to take a man like that and go well if i put him in space but if i also put him in if i also if i put him in a situation where his his good qualities would be affected in some way um what what would happen how how would he find his uh his core core strength again and and that was sort of the genesis of Alden. Uh, I don't know how much that actually stays with him, but you, you should be sensing some kind of integrity or some kind of um, love for his society and the values that maybe has got uh, lost or um, forgotten as as he has. He's had a few bad experiences. He clearly has bad experiences on um, on Zenkath, uh and loses people, loses people who are close to him. So I wanted to see what would happen to a man like that under particular kinds of stresses. Uh, I think Alden went off on his on his own journey uh, in, in the event, uh, so I'm not sure how well that experiment worked. Uh, but that's that's where he came from. I'm really pleased you like that story. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really glad about that. Well, one of the, the best parts about that story as well is that you got to play with the whole idea of you know the war generation as opposed to the exploring generation, and that really comes out yes. in the book because – you know, Alden is a character who's younger than, you know, the Picards and the, and the the Crushers and the Pulaski's, obviously, so that he's grown up really under the threat of war for a very long time from, you know, the Borg, the Dominion, and now the Cold War with the Typhon Pact. And so mm. his outlook on the universe is, is quite different even than, say, somebody like... Um, you know, even like a Kirk who kind of grew up with the Klingons being an adversary and the Romulans and whatnot, you know, they still had that outlook of exploration. We're going out to explore. Yeah. We're not mired down in these these big political events uh, until, you know, sometimes the end. I think this is uh, uh, this is Generation X talking to the baby boom, I think. This is uh, uh, Generation X saying, oh, we know it was brilliant. We know you had Woodstock. We know you got to do all these fantastic things. We... We graduated in a recession. We uh, we've not been able to um, buy houses very easily. Everything's expensive. We can't run a car. So it's a little bit of my kind of um, grump at the opportunities that the baby boom had. You had these freedoms that uh, that Generation X, uh, which is what I am, 
hasn't necessarily had. And then don't even start me on the millennials. <laughs> so it's a little bit of my, uh, it's a little bit of a sort of Generation X grouse. It's not, uh, I know it's much more complex than that, not least because uh, in America, obviously the baby boom um, had the Vietnam War going on, which we didn't have in Britain. But it's a, it's a sort of little um, British uh, baby boom grumping at its, uh, British Generation X grumping at its own baby boomers. Oh, all these opportunities. We've had it really tough, you know. Uh, so that so that's there, I think. But I, I did want to uh, in in the book. I, I I wanted to explore that seriously. That uh, uh, I think we like to think that you know each each new generation will have a better time of it, um, but that Alden's generation would not have had a better time. It would have experienced war after war, and that era of um, complete freedom to explore and go out and adventure. Uh, would be something that he'd just have missed uh, and it would change you in particular ways. Uh, so yes, that's that's definitely there. Well, and, and what was also nice to kind of see is is that even Pulaski admits uh, when, when Alden is helping them, you know, at the end with the chain uh, and some of his, his uh, clever um, spy maneuverings that, you know, there, <laughs> yes. there, is, there is a validity uh, to having a, a valid in intelligence agency, you know, that, that there's, there's a reason that we have these things. Um, and, and when it's done correctly, there, there is a, there's a, a goodness to having this, you know, um, but it, it needs to be done in an upright manner. Um, and that's, I kind of liked is that there's no easy answer, you know, and that's what deep space nine mm. really, I think, uh, did the best in star Trek is that, uh, TNG in some ways had had created a lot of easy answers, and then Deep Space Nine showed us that really to live in the twenty fourth century, there still aren't any easy answers. Yes, I agree, and I, I know that for some people this this means that it strays a little bit uh, away from being Star Trek. But uh, it it it's what drew me in, and what what sort of um, uh, I I think it's a it's a questioning of. Uh, idealism rather than a sort of um, acceptance of it that uh, that that our most idealistic standards in the real world we will we will be asked or forced or tempted uh, to compromise and to ask us about to reflect upon our limits and what we're prepared to let go and what we're prepared to make a stand about and I think Deep Space Nine is is the vehicle for that very successfully. You did something that I wasn't expecting in the book, which was that the title had a lot more to do with uh, some very philosophical ideas, especially from Picard's logs and, and musings throughout the book. And the idea of the missing, that there may be what is missing about people in the Federation that makes them travel. Why do we travel? Why do we explore really asking those big, deep philosophical questions about why is it that we do what we do? And is it because we are maybe worried about the malaise and stagnation that's come because of the the opulence of the Federation in some ways? Like everybody mm-hmm. has all this time on their hands because everything is, even with all the wars that we've had, it's still really good. You know, nobody's yeah. dying of hunger because you can just go to any replomat that you want. You know, n- none of these things are happening. And so what causes us to search and are we still searching for something because uh, there's a John Mayer song where he says there's something missing and uh, I don't know what it is or how to fix it. And it seems like Picard's really kind of 
thinking that in his head, there seems to be something missing about us, and that's what causes us to continue to search the galaxy. I agree. Yes, I think uh, Utopia would be uh, Utopia probably would be pretty boring, uh, and you would you would eventually go well. I've I've got to find adventure somewhere. I, I suppose thinking psychologically, uh, if you think of Picard's family situation, you almost see that in a way he's he's um, well he's 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 running away from that, isn't he? Or he's um, he's he's looking for something that wasn't there. Um, I, I'm really touched by where Picard has gone in these books that he's found this. Um, this family life that he never expected that, uh, uh, you know, he substitutes um, a sort of collegiate and, and quasi hierarchical uh, set of relationships uh, being uh, on a ship uh, for family life. But, but that in the books, he's now unexpectedly become a father. I find that extremely, um, extremely touching. Uh, it's happened to me that I've become a parent much later in life than I expected. Uh, so that's probably why it chimed at the moment. Um but yeah, I, I, everybody's chasing something in that book, and it and it's and it's more elusive perhaps than they thought, or what they discover is is not necessarily what they thought they missed. Um, so I, I hope that that story works uh, for all the characters, and that I I bring some interesting changes on it. Yeah. What made you choose Picard's logs for the opening chapters, especially after opening takedown, the the book that actually takes place concurrently with what's happening with Beverly here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like Picard's going to be very busy in that book, and yet he has time to, to do these musings. What made you kind of use his logs and his reminiscings about what it means to be a captain of a Federation starship, the flagship, and, and really be one of the most important people in Starfleet, even though he's not boasting, he's just being honest. That's who I've been for so many years. What made you kind of use his logs and, and kind of use that to to mold the story around? Um, I needed uh, Picard to be present in the book some way uh, because of where uh, Crusher's story ends. So I needed him, which I won't spoil. Uh, but where Crusher's story goes to at the end of the book. So I, I needed him to be present in some way. He's also, uh, he is, of course, one of the missing, um, you know, uh, and he, she is missing him and he is missing her. Originally, what how I conceived of these uh, logs was that um, Roe had gone to him to say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm taking on this job. I've, uh, um, I think I'm going to hit particular problems you're kind of like my mentor. Uh, can I have some advice? And that Picard is sort of writing these almost as letters to her or as uh, um, ad- advice to her of, of situations she may encounter. And then as this sort of evolved in my mind, I thought, well, do you know, probably lots of people come to Picard and say, um, can I get your advice on first contact? Can I get your advice on how to run a good ship? Your Picard, you know, we... We need your pearls of wisdom. And so he sort of thinks, well, maybe I'll do a little book. Uh, so I imagine him sort of, you know, on his off hours going, well, I'll, I'll just write a little essay about how to, how first contact works or um, how to put the best team together or uh, problems that I've commonly seen. I, and imagined it as a, a little book that he did. Uh, I think I've said this elsewhere. I imagine it as a sort of um, Kindle download. <laughs> <laughs> People can kind of... Picard, my, my thoughts upon exploration. And people go, oh, brilliant. He's got, you know, he's finally sat down and done this. So it's almost like a sort of um, collection of reflections and essays that he puts together for a circle of friends uh, or people who have asked him. 
uh, and um, and Roe is one of these people. I, I think it gets out in early press material for the book that that she's reading these. She's been going back over his logs and trying to learn from them. Um, but that that's that got lost in the book. I couldn't quite work it in. But I I knew that these logs had to be there somewhere. They're a sort of um, formal meditation on what we're seeing informally play out. So uh, uh, you know his formal meditations about the Prime Directive. They don't necessarily work out in practice, but the best thing might be just to uh, put your feet up and have a couple of drinks with these guys <laughs> and have a chat to them rather than, you know, get into the dress uniform and go, oh, we welcome you. And um, so that was sort of, uh, they're, a, they're a formal representation of, of what's informally happening, the messiness of everyday life on a, on a station like Deep Space Nine. Well, so that was the idea. A note to Simon and Schuster. I, I want to read that book. So yes. <laughs> I think that would be great. Picard's Guide to Captaincy or something. That would be excellent. Yeah, yeah well, I, I'm happy to write it. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good fun. Yes. Yeah, so, I, and also, I, we're, always in my books, I just have a bit of a, I, my background's in sociology. So I always have a bit of fun with um, the kind of books I used to have to teach about uh, group dynamics or uh, motivational techniques, these kinds of things. So uh, I'm I'm having a little innocent fun uh, uh, for myself as well, I think, yeah. Well, and that really came out, I think, in this book with all of these different societies that you had. You know, you had the people of the sky, you have the chain, you had the Zenkethi, you have the Federation, you have uh, Starfleet, Starfleet intelligence and all of these things. And, and Star Trek, in a lot of ways, really does like to try to respect the values of different societies and, and try and put them on the same level and say, you know, this society has these values because that's where its culture comes from and we can't say ours are better. And yet sometimes we get the feeling that the Federation values are paramount. And, and Picard even mentions that in his logs, um, mm. especially when we talk about the Prime Directive. Um, I loved that that this has a lot to do with the conversations of the book of, of the struggle to understand a different society and, and not again prejudge it uh yeah. by what we believe is right um and that's a that's a difficult thing to really actually live in the milieu where we don't know everything that's right it, in a completely multicultural and and um very fluid form of of morality and values uh that's that's I don't know. I, I don't think humans have a, any idea of what that's truly like, and if it's even really possible. I, I, I mean, I think multiculturalism is a, is a, it, it's just a state of being, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, uh, it, it's the way we live in the world. We're, we're, we're constantly, um, uh, certainly the life I lead. Uh, I'm constantly finding myself meeting people from very different backgrounds and trying to learn from them and understand their perspective on the world particularly as the world globalizes and we're just more more easily in contact with other with other cultures with other peoples with different perspectives um and simultaneously to to um want to understand a different perspective to retain one's own sense of values uh this is what it's what i believe this is what i think this is what is right or wrong but also to try and find a common ground between different perspectives we broadly agree that these are good values. Don't be cruel. Don't be mean. Don't be unkind to children. Don't be unkind to strangers. 
welcome people with open arms, um, act in good faith. I, I think broadly we could probably drop into, you know, go back to those uh, Egyptians building the pyramids. They would broadly say that. Don't be rubbish to the guy next door. He's having a hard time. You know, <laughs> or uh, it, the bit of Nile flooded on his uh, patch the other day. Let's uh, let's all chip in because it might happen to us one day and we'll want a, a bit of help. So I think um, probably about 15 years ago, you would have I would have absolutely fought the corner for cultural relativism. As I, as I get a little bit older, I kind of go, there are probably... There are probably a, a set of uh, values that are across time we would go, kindness is good, you know, uh, open-mindedness is good, diversity is good. Uh, and, and those are the books, those, those are the values that, that, that I believe in and I, I just try and encode in my stories, I think. Yeah. I have to say, any time that somebody can reference a few things for me, it's going to put that book way up there. I mean, you referenced Casablanca. We're going to round up the usual suspects. Uh, You referenced Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, saying that the uh, people were mostly harmless. That was brilliant. (laughs) And you referenced the Bothans and many people dying to bring this to you from Star Wars. Brilliant work. I'd like to think that I was, you know, a very, very well-rounded and well-read person, but... uh, at the end of the day, it's it, it all comes down to pop culture references. I don't actually like Casablanca very much, but it does have some great lines. So uh, I did enjoy putting that one in. Sometimes I think I use these lines and I write them and I think, I know I've pinched that from somewhere, but I'm, I'm going to leave that in and just hope that people think I'm nodding at Star Wars. So uh, I usually by the end of the book, I've managed to remember where I've got something from. I'm really pleased that you, uh, you picked those up. Of course, I love Douglas Adams' uh, great absolutely great mind um you know the the jokes look funny and the books look silly but uh, there's a lot of deep thinking going on in there and uh yeah love douglas adams to bits well it's funny you say you know casablanca isn't your favorite it's my favorite movie uh, and so <laughs> having that in there was just so perfect and it made so much sense that on deep space nine you would kind of have a band of usual absolutely suspects. Yeah, yeah, yes. It is. Uh, it is Rick's bar, isn't it? So it really uh, is. Quarks, really. So it, that that little out bar in a outpost in the middle of nowhere, where the uh, the washed up and the lonely all turn up eventually. Yeah, yeah, it fits right in. Well, the last thing that I wanted to say was that I really loved Odo's statement that Deep Space Nine has always been a home for people who didn't have one, and yeah. you know, for the the lost and the broken, and and I really loved that. Um, this new Deep Space Nine feels like it's it's becoming home again to people who had gotten lost, like Odo's coming back. And now I'm just very excited to see as the books will continue on Deep Space Nine. You know, we know David R. George is coming back to write some more, and I hope that you will as well. Uh, but that slowly everybody's kind of returning, and it's really nice to have that sense of... of familiarity back even though the station's different the people are are starting to trickle back in because this is this whole book reminded me of the the thomas wolf book you know can you go home again and is it possible to go home again and right that's the question and these people are finding you can go home again because home is where you make it and um it doesn't matter if the station looks different now or some of the people have changed you know, if you want to make a place your home, you make a place your home. And uh, and certainly with Corazame, she knows that she can never go home and that she has to therefore find a 
find a way of living in the world, make a home for herself, because the home she wants to be in is is gone to her uh, and was not what she imagined it to be. So, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree that that's a theme there as well. Absolutely. What's coming up for you next, Una? Um, what will we have, you know, Star Trek book wise or, or other works that people need to be out there looking for by you? Uh, Star Trek wise, uh, nothing on the cards at the moment, um, although I never say never. Um, a couple of projects that I'm working on that I, I have to be have to be quiet about at the moment, but um, hopefully they'll, I'll be able to say something about them soon. I have a play coming from Big Finish uh, quite soon, who are people that do um, uh, uh, Doctor Who uh, audios and uh, Doctor Who spin-off audios. They have a series called Bernice Summerfield, um, and I've, I've done a play for that, uh, which is reviving a, for those listeners who know Doctor Who, there's uh, an alien in the uh, original series, a villain called Sutek, who, um, who is actually an, a, an, an Egyptian god. Uh, we keep going back to these Egyptians. Um, so they brought Sutek back as a villain, and uh, I have a play about him called The, uh, the Tears of Isis. So that's coming out um, later in the year. So I think that's that's what's on the cards at the moment that I can announce. As I say, uh, a few other things uh, that I can't... Uh, if I told you, I'd have to, you know, go Garrick and uh, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> okay, well, um, glad we... Lucky dodge. <laughs> yeah, glad we don't have to go full on Garrick, which it was great to see him in this book. And, and uh, one last question then. What's it like to write Garrick as, as the leader now of, of Cardassia? Um, because he is really somebody who's kind of come full circle from from where he used to be i i am now just uh, i guess i'm getting uh my revenge on garrick now all those years that he sneaked up and tapped me on the shoulder and scared the life out of me as he uh whispered these stories in my ears i now get to torment him with uh due process and committees and uh having to uh satisfy uh the uh needs of uh, democratic process. So I'm having a little gentle revenge with Garrick, and as ever, it's a, a very enjoyable experience. So, uh, yeah, I, I'll always love writing Garrick. I do have to say I loved kind of seeing Garrick's rule through the eyes of Odo and how he's so skeptical and so, you know, still very wary of him and, and deservedly so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, of course, uh, Garrick tries to uh, commit genocide against his people. So if I was Odo, I'd... Uh, I'd, I'd have no trust for her. Uh, uh, I've talked about this uh, a lot in the past, but such a great dynamic between those two. Really interesting. Oh, and of course, the small matter of the interrogation. You know, there's a kind of personal grudge between them as well. Yeah, and, <laughs> and yet somehow they're friends. It's um, it's extraordinary. Yep, uh, lots of good. I, I I think there's there's possibly stories in Garrick being Castellan. Um, uh, I'll have to have a little think about them first or what kind of stories they'd be. I don't want them to be sort of, a, I think somebody um, uh, on a review perceptively said, oh, you don't want to, you don't want them to be tamed. The Cardassians could feel tamed. It could feel like Tigger bouncing in. Um, and that's exactly what I don't want. I, I'd, I'd like them to be complex in some way, but I haven't quite worked that out yet. So uh, more, more research is necessary as uh, academics say. Well, I have to say uh- Pocket Books needs to be listening because we we need more <laughs> of your books. Um, I, I think you. universally, you know, when you look across uh, the the book fandom, people really gravitate towards your books because, as we've talked about this whole interview and, and every time we've talked about before, you, you, your books have something really great to say 
And that's what makes great sci-fi and Star Trek. And I hope that especially we'll have you back with the Deep Space Nine characters because um, you really write so many of them so well. You know, I can hear all of the voices in my head, which is the most important, of course, uh, you know, Garrick and, and Odo and Roe even and Quark and all of these people, I can hear them speaking in my head in their voice and it sounds right. And that's the most important. So pocket more Una. Oh, thank you very much. Well, that's very gratifying. It's, it, it's, it is very nice to hear nice things said about one's books. So uh, I, I, I really do appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, there's definitely no end of nice things to say about your books. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's even nicer to hear. Thank you. Well, last thing, where can everybody find you online and kind of keep track of, of things that are coming out once they get announced um, that, uh, you know, they, they need to pick up from you? Yeah, absolutely. The place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, where I uh, fritter away far too much time. Uh, my uh, Twitter name is very straightforward. It's at Una McCormack. Uh, I do have a website up and running again, uh, which is unamccormack.com. Uh, as ever with websites these days, it's not updated as, as often as it should be. The blog isn't updated as often as it should be. But uh, I'm hoping to get a bit better at that. But definitely Twitter, where I'm, I'm there most of the time. When you have a, a small child, uh, you sort of um, you enjoy – tweeting is about the uh, – the level of what you can manage. So uh, that's that's where I am most of the time. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Una. It is always a pleasure. Absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And always really good questions. I really enjoy thinking through uh, uh, the ramifications of the questions. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, we're keeping our fingers crossed that we are going to be having you back, uh, <laughs> hopefully at least next year, because the Pocket's going to come to their senses and give you a new Star Trek book. Uh, well, I hope so too. That would be lovely. That'd be really, really nice. Thanks, guys. Well, Matthew, that was an excellent conversation with Una McCormick about The Missing. I got to tell you, I'm never disappointed by her books. She's an incredible writer, and it's it's a boon to Star Trek literature that we have her writing novels for us. I, I could not agree more, Dan. Um, I have always enjoyed Una's books, and you know, I think that her latest in, in the series have just been fantastic. Uh, I really enjoyed Brinkmanship for what it did with with all these different races. And as we talked about, for the everybody knows here in the network, I'm a, I'm a big Beverly Crusher fan. And the fact that she really does get an opportunity to shine again in The Missing was just fantastic. Uh, I couldn't be more excited um, than when I was reading this book and, and having her really be a big part. Um, and um, goodness... Seriously, Pocket, get on getting Una back because uh, she needs to be writing more Star Trek books. And specifically, I think she needs to be working with uh, David R. George III to, to write some more Deep Space Nine. Here, here. Uh, I would love to see something like an ongoing serialized Deep Space Nine story again, like we had uh, immediately after the series with the relaunch. Um, you know, the, the wider continuity and tying everything together is great. And and I'd love to see more of that as well. But uh, Deep Space Nine specific stories, I just I can't get enough of that station and those characters. Yeah, I'm with you. It's 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 exactly how I feel uh, about the the station. I love that station. It's my favorite place to be in Star Trek, 
And as we kind of talked about with Una there at the end, I really like that we are slowly kind of bringing the characters back. And in fact, what we talked about with David R. George's new books coming out seems like Cisco's going to start to be around Deep Space Nine more often. So again, I, I couldn't be more excited. Here, here. <laughs> well, it has been a blast talking to Una about The Missing, but obviously it's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Track of Him here the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Really, really, really hope that if they do that, they make Chang the villain because, you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to captain. I mean, you uh, you killed the last captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy. But in this case... Well, well to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. But the Federation and Bator as a member of the Federation would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Julie has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she you know kind what I'm of talking does. About? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The Ready Room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown uh, golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. You, but you'd rather see Red in charge than him. Oh, yeah, totally. Because <laughs> right. you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, yeah. So. Axonar, the official podcast. The changes that we've made, that we changed the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we have been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. And of course, now beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcast. If you are an Apple user, just hit that subscribe button and leave us a written review and star rating. All of these things help people be able to find us easier when they search in iTunes and help us raise up in the rankings as Trek FM and our shows and so that we can have a wider audience. But guess what? If you are not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help all of our shows keep coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. And if you visit patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash trekfm, you'll find all the current goals 
and the milestone contribution levels, along with the great perks that come with those. Uh, of course, those would include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. Guys, I just want to thank you so much for all of the support so far. Without you, we can't do this, and your continued support means the world to us. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that on the website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. Look on the sidebar in the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And of course, if you'd like to have a more in-depth conversation with us, you can do that on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trekfm and click discussion on the menu bar. We'd like to thank our associate producer, Will Wynn, who's on Twitter at will underscore win and of course on the babel conference he's also an associate producer of the orb and earl gray and he's trek fm's contact coordinator so if you have any ideas for future shows you can email him at will.win at trek fm or you can send him a tweet we'd really like to thank lisa stevens for her support of the network and being an associate producer here on literary treks you can find her on twitter at flip teen and then of course we'd like to thank kenneth tripp for his support of literary treks in our network and being an associate producer here as well guys thank you so much for your support and before we go we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring literary treks and all of our shows to each week and our sponsor for the show is audible.com audible is a great way to read all the books that you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for and as a Trek FM listener, you can get that free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. And guess what? Even if you don't stay with Audible, you still get to keep that book. So just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. And we thank Audible for supporting Literary Treks and the network. Now, Dan, when Quark isn't getting you into trouble there on Deep Space Nine with a new holodeck program or some sleazy scheme he's got going on, where can we find you? Oh, that Quark, he's always getting me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> he sure is. <laughs> well, uh, Matthew, you can find me online. Uh, my website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, is www.treklet.com. And the reviews that I do of Pocketbook's new releases get republished on trekcore.com as well. On Twitter, you can find me. I'm at trekletreviews. And I'm, on also, I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash trekletreviews. And Matthew, when you're not locked away in your ready room reading Picard's logs to get inspiration for that latest first contact mission, where can we find you? You know, it's crazy how much time that takes. That Picard, he's so eloquent and and well-spoken it's fantastic but man you can find me on twitter at matt rushing zero two you can also find me doing the orb with uh, christopher jones where we talk about deep space nine exclusively so if you enjoy hearing our deep space nine talk here check out that show i'm also on the 602 club where we pick a geeky topic each week and just talk through that usually doesn't have anything to do with star trek because we kind of have a lot of that on the network so if you just need some general geek talk come join us at the 602 club and then i'm on my own personal blog at 42 lifeinbetween.wordpress.com well guys thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one